We're currently in the middle of a sermon series on a section of John's Gospel known as Jesus' Farewell Discourse. But because it's our fifth anniversary service, we're going to take a break today from that series. It seems appropriate to study one of the Bible passages featuring God as our good shepherd. So our second Bible reading today is one of those passages. Micah chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, and I'll read that now. I will certainly gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely assemble the remnant of Israel. I will place them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. They will bleat for fear of man. The one who breaks out has gone up before them. They have broken out and they passed over. There was a gate and they went out by it. And their king passed before them, Yahweh at their head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow our heads to pray for God's help in understanding and applying those words. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Father, we pray that we would find your word to be just as you say it is, a lamp to our feet to keep us from stumbling and a light for our path to show us the way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible frequently compares human beings to sheep. Sheep in need of a shepherd. And it's not a flattering comparison. Human beings like to think that we can look after ourselves in this life. We typically have an I've got this mentality. We don't like the idea that we need to depend on anyone or anything other than ourselves. But sheep can't look after themselves. Sheep wander off and get hopelessly lost. They wander off and get hopelessly stuck. Sheep need a shepherd to care for them. So whenever the Bible compares human beings to sheep, it's saying, you haven't got this. You're not able to look after yourselves. You need God to care for you like a shepherd caring for a flock of sheep. As we look into the mirror of God's word, we find a woolly four-legged creature looking back at us. When we turn to the Bible's index and look up human beings under H, it says human beings see sheep. So can I ask, right at the outset of this sermon, have you accepted that verdict from the Bible on you and your life? It is good for us to accept it, to take it on board, so that we can receive all the benefits of God's loving shepherding. In his love, God wants to get involved in your life as your shepherd, so that things will go well for you. That won't happen unless you open yourself up 
to God's shepherding. In today's Bible passage, we see how God shepherded his people at one particular time in salvation history. It was a time when the future of God's people was uncertain. In fact, many onlookers would have predicted that God's people were about to be crushed to the point of extinction. But as we'll see, God saves his people by shepherding them. First he gathers his people, verse 12, then he leads them to safety, verse 13. We'll look at each verse in turn, beginning with the gathering verse, verse 12. We can give this verse the heading, a promise that fits a pattern. A promise that fits a pattern. The speaker in verse 12 is God himself. And the promise he makes sounds very reassuring right up until the final line. Let's look down, please, to verse 12, and I'll read it again now. I will certainly gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely assemble the remnant of Israel. I will place them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. They will bleat for fear of man. That final line gives us a puzzle to solve. If God has gathered his people, why are they still fearful? We can solve the puzzle with the help of other Old Testament passages that tell us what was going on at this particular time in history. Micah prophesied during the reign of King Hezekiah. When Hezekiah was king of Judah, the Assyrians invaded the land. It was a bit like Russia invading Ukraine. Assyria was a dominant regional power like Russia, and Judah was a smaller and weaker neighbor. Although it needs to be said that Judah was far smaller and much weaker than Ukraine. Judah was about the same size as Delaware. It came into existence when Israel's northern tribes rebelled against King Rehoboam, the grandson of King David. Those breakaway tribes banded together to form the kingdom of Israel in the north, but the tribe of Judah in the south stayed faithful to King Rehoboam, and it became the teeny tiny kingdom of Judah. Many years later, many kings later, Hezekiah came to the throne in that southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. By that time, the northern kingdom of Israel no longer existed. It had been conquered by, guess who, the Assyrians. That conquest happened in the year 722 BC, just five years or so before Hezekiah became king of Judah. So you can imagine how vulnerable Hezekiah and his people must have felt when the army of the mighty Assyrian empire invaded their tiny nation. I said a moment ago that it was like Russia invading Ukraine. But if you factor in that recent defeat of the kingdom of Israel, perhaps a better comparison for Assyria's invasion of Judah would be Russia going on to attack tiny Moldova after successfully conquering Ukraine, which we hope and pray won't happen. Judah was in relation to Assyria as Moldova is in relation to Russia. So by now, the end of verse 12 should be less puzzling, I think. The people are bleating with fear because of the Assyrian invasion. And the man they fear is Sennacherib, king of Assyria. 
He's the Vladimir Putin of his day, the man responsible for ordering the Assyrian attack. It was good for God's people to be gathered in one place. We'll see why it was good in a moment. But we can understand why, despite the goodness of being gathered, they're still bleating with fear. To begin with, King Sennacherib of Assyria has the kind of success that the ancient equivalents of CNN and NPR are predicting he will have. Listen to this from 2 Kings chapter 18. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. The only city left standing, as the rest of that Bible chapter makes clear, is Jerusalem, the capital of Judah. That's where God gathers his people, in Jerusalem. And that explains why it was good to be gathered by God in one place. Jerusalem was hard to attack. It was built on a mountainous plateau surrounded by valleys. That location made it difficult for an enemy army to get at it. For God's people at that time, it was better by far to be gathered in Jerusalem than to be anywhere else in Judah. In the second line of verse 12, God describes those people gathered in Jerusalem as the remnant of Israel. Israel had once been a great kingdom, a mighty power. But by this point in history, due to the people's wrongdoing, their rebelliousness against God, Israel has shrunk to near oblivion. As we've already heard, it's split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was conquered, and then the tiny southern kingdom was attacked and overrun. Only Jerusalem is still holding out. At the time in history, in view in verse 12, only a small portion of that once mighty nation still exists. God cares for those survivors by gathering them into Jerusalem. They're bleating with fear, but God has a plan to protect them. By assembling them in Jerusalem, he will keep them safe. Now, the heading we gave to verse 12 was a promise that fits a pattern. Verse 12 relates to one particular episode in salvation history. But what it says about God gathering his people fits a wider pattern found throughout the whole Bible. One of the main ways in which God shepherds his people is by gathering his people, assembling us in one place. I will surely assemble the remnant of Israel, God says in line 2 of verse 12. Yes, that's talking about one particular incident, but it's also a melody that keeps being played in the symphony of salvation history. God saves a remnant and he gathers those survivors together. It's a melody that is also played in the New Testament. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that many enter through the wide gate that leads to destruction, but only a few find the narrow gate that leads to life. In other words, only a remnant receives eternal life. And God assembles that remnant. He gathers us together. Whenever you see the word church in the New Testament, 
It's a reminder that God gathers his people. Church is the English translation of a Greek word that just means gathering or assembly. The word church, that English word church, is a lot more churchy than the word it translates, if you see what I mean. So every time we see that word church in the New Testament, it should remind us that God shepherds his people by gathering us together into an assembly. One difference between God's gathering in Old Testament times and his gathering in our own New Testament period of salvation history is that God now assembles his people in many local gatherings instead of one enormous rally. He assembles us in local churches spread out across the globe. That's how he gathers his people in our time. And so anyone who knows that they are a sheep in God's sight and who wants to benefit from his loving shepherding will join a local church. They'll join a faithful Bible-believing church and they'll keep showing up Sunday after Sunday. Human shepherds let their flocks scatter over the pasture and then they gather them in. And God does the same. He sends out his people and then he gathers them in Sunday by Sunday. To de-gather yourself, to separate yourself from the local church is a very serious step to take. I don't mean changing church. That's something we may need to do sometimes. I'm talking about giving up on any local church attendance while still thinking of yourself as a Christian. If you ungather yourself, you are thwarting God in his shepherding work, his shepherding desires for you. In their book, Rediscover Church, published to coincide with what we hope is the end of the pandemic, Colin Hansen and Jonathan Lehman explore the question, the interesting question, of why gathering together is so beneficial to God's people. Here's a quote from their book, Rediscover Church. What makes gatherings so powerful? The fact that you are physically there. You see, you hear, you feel. Unlike watching something on a screen in which you are bodily removed from the thing you're watching, a gathering literally surrounds you. It defines your entire reality. In a gathering, we experience what other people love and believe, and our sense of what's normal and what's right can shift comparatively quickly." End quote. Those observations help me understand how something as simple and familiar as a weekly Sunday service can transform my outlook and attitudes and even my desires. And I know that it's not just me. A friend of mine once posted on her Facebook page this plug for her own church. Going to church on Sundays is a relief. It's letting out a breath you didn't know you were holding. It's a welcome back, a welcome home, a welcome for the very first time. It's an act of self-care unlike any other I've tried. And let me tell you, I've tried most. Other favorites include running outside, making time to read for fun, 
and watching five hours of The Office just because. An act of self-care unlike any other, she says. And the reason why that's true is because when we go to church, we're letting God shepherd us. What we really need isn't me time, it's flock time. And God wants to give us the benefits of flock time. Belonging to the remnant is hard in this world. We believe radically different things from most of our neighbours, which makes us feel isolated and weird. When we gather with our co-remnantites, all of that changes. Suddenly, it's not us who are isolated and weird, it's the people who aren't gathering in church to worship Jesus. Let God shepherd you by committing yourself to local church attendance and involvement. But it's time now for us to move on to verse 13 and the second half of the sermon. We'll give this verse the heading, A Prophecy That Raises Expectations. A Prophecy That Raises Expectations. As we move from verse 12 to verse 13, there's a change of speaker. Whereas God himself speaks the words of verse 12, in verse 13, the speaker is the prophet Micah. Both verses have the same status, they're both scripture, they're both breathed out by the Holy Spirit, but there is a change of speaker, and that gives us a different camera angle. Instead of God saying what he himself will do, in verse 13, Micah observes God in action. What he sees is God leading his people to victory. Please look down with me to verse 13. The one who breaks out has gone up before them. They have broken out and they passed over. There was a gate and they went out by it. And their king passed before them. Yahweh at their head. If you look closely at that verse, you'll see that it has a diamond-shaped structure. It starts narrowly with just a single individual. The one who breaks out has gone up before them. And then the verse widens to include many people. They have broken out and they passed over. There was a gate and they went out by it. And then the verse narrows again to that one individual and their king passed before them. Yahweh at their head. That diamond-shaped structure makes it impossible to ignore the decisive role played by one individual. He gets the credit at the beginning and the end. The many people in the middle of the verse, in the middle of the diamond, are caught up in his work. They're following his lead. He's the one who wins the victory. Now that prophecy matches up perfectly with what happened when Sennacherib's army threatened Jerusalem after laying waste to the rest of Judah. Listen to 2 Kings 19 verses 32 through 36. This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city, Jerusalem, or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. That night, 
still quoting from 2 Kings 19. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death a 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh, hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem, and stayed there. End of quote. So things turned out just as Micah prophesied. God broke out of Jerusalem at the head of his people. He overcame the invading army through the power of that destroying angel. And the people followed after him. They weren't trapped inside Jerusalem, running out of food, starving to death. No, they were able to go out of the gate to safety. Micah's accurate prophecy about God's victory over the Assyrians is important in itself for what it says about that particular time in history. But verse 13 also raises expectations and hopes about Israel's long-term future. In Micah 2 verse 13, it is very hard to distinguish between the king and God. The natural way to understand their king passed before them towards the end of verse 13 would be to think of King Hezekiah. He was there in the city ruling his people. He was their king. And yet in those last two lines, Micah seems to blur king and God. Yahweh is the name of Israel's God, the God of the Bible. King and God seem to be one and the same person there in those two final lines. I looked up that verse in the Jewish Study Bible published by the Oxford University Press, a very scholarly book. It's a Bible commentary written by Jewish scholars. I wanted to see what they would say about Micah chapter 2, verse 13, that blurring of the king and God. Here's what they say. It is unclear if a human king is meant or whether the Lord here is the king. seems like a very honest reading to me. That's exactly right. It is unclear, isn't it? And that has the effect of raising expectations. It gets mental wheels turning. There are other Old Testament passages, such as Isaiah 9 and Psalm 45, that speak clearly of a human king in the line of David as God himself. And Micah 2 verse 13 meshes very well with those passages. It's a verse about a particular incident, but it stirs up long-term hope. It stirs up the hope that a royal God-man will save God's people. It stirs up the hope that he will save us from our ultimate enemies, our most threatening enemies, sin death and condemnation. Micah 2 verse 13 is one of the many Old Testament verses preparing the way for the arrival of Jesus. He was and is the promised king 
who was both God and man. And he has led his people to victory. I wonder if you noticed how easy it was for God to win that victory over the invading Assyrian army. 185,000 Assyrian troops put to death overnight. There they are in the morning, all the dead bodies. It was so easy for God to do that. But it wasn't easy for God, in the person of his son Jesus, to triumph over those ultimate enemies, sin, death, and condemnation. To triumph over those enemies, God had to become man. The incarnation had to happen. God the Son had to live out those years as a man. More than that, he had to die on the cross. We see the difficulty of his death on the cross, not only in his words as he died, but also the previous evening in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he asks God if there is another way for that other way to be found, that there is no other way for him to save his people, to triumph over those enemies. He has to die on the cross, bearing our sin, as we heard about in our first Bible reading this morning, paying the punishment for that sin as he dies. Verse 13 of our passage today lays the groundwork for that future victory by raising expectations, preparing and stirring up hope. But verse 13 does even more than simply lay the groundwork for the arrival of Jesus. It also sets out another principle about God's shepherding. He doesn't just gather his people, he leads us. He leads us to victory. We need him to lead us to victory. In the New Testament, just as God leads his people to victory in Micah 2 verse 13, it's clear that God will lead his people to ultimate victory because of what Jesus has done for us. We see in the New Testament that we need to get from A to B. We need to persevere as believers. We're saved, we're forgiven, but we need to keep following Jesus through his strength all the way until the end. Jesus' return or our own death. We need God to lead us, to guide us along the way. He has already led us through the gate of salvation, but we need him to keep leading us. As a pastor, I rejoice when I see God's people gathered, because I know how good it is for us to gather. It's part of God's shepherding. But I also know that all of the members of this church need more than God's gathering. We also need his leading. Should you take that job offer? Should you move to that town? Should you keep going out with that girlfriend or boyfriend? Or should you break things off? Even in situations where life might seem very settled, God's people still need his leading. The good news of the whole Bible is that God leads his people. There's a wonderful chapter on guidance in J.I. Packer's classic book, Knowing God. And after listing some of the many biblical examples of God 
leading his people, guiding his people, J.I. Packer says this, guidance by dreams, visions, and direct verbal messages must be judged exceptional and not normal. Yet, these events, he means the biblical examples he's just listed, do at least show that God has no difficulty in making his will known to his servants. J.R. Packer goes on to say, it is impossible to doubt that guidance is a reality intended for and promised to every child of God. Christians who miss it thereby show only that they did not seek it as they should. I think I'll read that last part again. It is impossible to doubt that guidance is a reality intended for and promised to every child of God. Christians who miss it thereby show only that they did not seek it as they should. How then should we seek God's guidance? Fundamentally, he guides his people through his word, the Bible, and through prayer, as we ask him to guide us and as we ask him for understanding of his word. God reveals his will in the Bible. So many options and decisions are shut down for us because we're commanded not to do them. In the Bible, I know that it is not a good idea for me to go out and rob a bank because theft is prohibited in the Bible. That's guidance. But of course, there are choices that seem equally good, that seem equally permissible in God's sight. How do we choose between them? Even then, the Bible can influence us, transforming the way that we think about life, the way that we think about ourselves, our gifts, our responsibilities to other people. And so as we read, God can make it clear to us which is the best way forward. We can also ask advice from other Christians who themselves know the Bible, read the Bible, and have been transformed by the Bible. That's not necessarily a quick or snappy process, but if we take our time trusting that God will guide us as the Bible promises, he will make his way clear. He will lead us from A to B, giving us the guidance that we need to keep going in his servants all the way until the last day. God gathers his people. God leads his people. That is how he shepherds us. It's humbling to acknowledge that you're a sheep in need of shepherding. But we are so sheep-like, aren't we, when we're honest? In fact, if you're here today as a non-Christian and not yet Christian, thank you for being with us. Wouldn't you agree that you're a sheep in need of God's shepherding? When you look hard at your own shortcomings, when you look hard at the reality that any day could be your last, wouldn't you agree that you're a sheep in need of God's shepherding? You could come to him and make him your shepherd, even today. It's humbling, but it's good to face up to the truth about ourselves. We do need God to act as our shepherd. We need him to gather us into the local church. And if you are listening as a non-Christian, that part would happen as you put your trust in Jesus and publicly declare your faith to the church through baptism. 
God gathers his people and he leads us all the way to his own presence in the new Jerusalem, the city to come. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you know what we need as our shepherd. We thank you that it is your desire to meet those truest needs through your gathering and through your leading. Help us to open ourselves up to your shepherding as we should. We praise you and thank you, Heavenly Father, that Jesus came down into our world to be our good shepherd, leading us to victory over our ultimate and greatest enemies through his death and resurrection. We give thanks to you for him. Amen.